0: All righty gang, so before we get too much further, uh, so elementary kids, uh, so like preschool through fifth grade, you guys can head out the side with uh, Eden and Naomi are gonna help walk you back where Miss Sharon is waiting with her puppets. Anybody else that wants to go back and see Miss Sharon's puppets, I wouldn't blame you. So you guys are welcome to go back there as well. Uh, As Donjay mentioned, do pray for all the folks in the the church who are here, there, and everywhere this week. And if you want to see what it really looks like when everybody's gone home for Christmas, then come next week, because next week it's going to be me and the worship team, most of which is going to be my family. So (laughs) if you're in town next week, we would love to see you here. We have an exciting service planned, lots of music. The kids are going to do a special performance for us. And we're going to have just a tiny little short message and get everybody out of here uh, quick. So um, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, with something special to look at uh, in the word this morning. And I think God's just going to really bless us uh, for it. So Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord. We do thank you for all of the exciting things that are going on, Lord, in the midst of our church, Lord. We thank you for just the answer to prayer for Pastor Chris and for Heather, Lord, and this wonderful placement of this baby girl, Lord. We thank you for those who already have stepped up and wanna come around and be a support to them, Lord. We pray that you would just continue to bless that uh, endeavor for them, Lord. Um, even now, while they're there at home uh, with the baby, Lord, we pray that you would bless them all, Lord. We. We thank you for, um, for the rest of the kids here at the church, Lord. We thank you for the work that they're doing to prepare, to share with us next week, Lord. Pray that you bless them this morning as they're in their classes. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we go to your word, that you would just uh, minister to us, Lord. Give us open ears and open hearts to hear what your spirit would say to your church this morning. Lord, we, uh, we've come here to sit quietly at your feet, and we pray that you would just calm our hearts So that we can hear your still, small voice. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we're going to take a bit of a break from the book of Mark uh, just briefly this morning. As you know, if you've been here with us as we're studying through it, we are just approaching the death of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to take a little break for a couple weeks and just shift gears as we prepare really to celebrate the birth of Jesus uh, next Monday. And to do that, um, I wanted to look together this morning at what is probably a very familiar passage from the Old Testament. Um, So you can go ahead and turn with me if you would to Isaiah chapter 9. It's right about in the middle of... Uh, the Bible and in Isaiah chapter nine, a lot of you are familiar with it. It's the chapter in which we find what I think is one of not only the most powerful prophetic promises about the coming of Jesus, but also what is really a, a stunning prophetic portrait if you will, about what he would actually do and really who he will actually be when he comes and Isaiah chapter 9 is certainly one of the most well-known, well-loved prophecies that we find relating to Jesus. It's one of my favorites that I really think helps us to set the stage in a special way for Christmas. Um, It is one of my favorite passages so much so that as I was studying this week, it occurred to me, I think we may have looked at this passage before, but if we did, it was at least a few years back. Nobody was probably listening anyway. If so, you wouldn't remember. No, more than any of that, uh, it is a, a passage of scripture that is well worth Our attention again I think especially in this year you're gonna see next week as we're preparing to really focus on the coming the birth of the king and so what I wanted to do today is we're gonna look at kind of the main aspects of the entire prophecy so that next week we can really take our time and really zero in during our Christmas service at just one very specific but beautiful aspect of this prophecy, you know, not only for the world, but for each of us as followers of Jesus. So, Isaiah chapter 9, but first a bit of background. And of course, Isaiah, as you all know, was a prophet who ministered for about 64 years, about 700 years, before the birth of Jesus. And he prophesied both to the northern as well as to the southern kingdoms of Israel. And we remember that by this time that we come to Isaiah's time, Israel had been in the promised land now for almost 700 years. And for the first 400 years of that time, Uh, We know that it was the period, what they call the period of the judges, where these judges or these, you know, spiritual, military kind of political leaders whom God raised up as the needs of the nation kind of demanded, and they governed over Israel for about 400 years. Then for about 120 years after that, there were three different kings, right, King Saul, King David, and then his son, King Solomon, and they reigned over the entire nation of Israel. But then, in about 917 BC, due to really the foolishness of Solomon's son, King Jeroboam, Israel suffered a civil war, and from that point remained divided into these two different nations where you have what's called the kingdom of Israel up in the north and then the kingdom of Judah down in the south. And that continued right up until now in the time of Isaiah. And their history during that period of their history was just a mess. As you read the accounts of the book of Kings and into the Chronicles, you see that the northern nation of Israel had 18 different kings. Every one of them was bad. Every one of them was rebellious against the Lord. And then you look at the southern kingdom of Judah. They had 11 kings that came before Isaiah's ministry. Some were good and some were not so good. And by the time we get here to Isaiah, as if the Jews didn't have enough trouble within their own borders, Israel, as you know, even to this day, is a very tiny nation that so often is caught up right in the middle of wars between the the larger nations that are around them. At this time, it was the wars between these three surrounding superpowers of Egypt and of Assyria and then uh, Babylon. And so as Isaiah began his ministry, there was this critical national crisis up in the northern nation of Israel because that superpower Assyria was about to just fully engulf them, which they finally did, and the southern kingdom of Judah was under this kind of a constant, repeated threat of the very same thing happening from all of these larger nations around them. So all of that is simply to say this, that things for God's chosen people at this point in their history were not good. The overall outlook, we could say, was pretty dark. So there was a great darkness, if you will, over all uh, of Israel. And when we pick things up in chapter 9, we're going to see that they're even going to get a little bit worse, because chapter 9 is kind of this climax of this continuation of this series of prophecies that Isaiah delivered to the current king of Judah, a man by the name of King Ahaz. And he was without a doubt, one of the most wicked kings of Judah. He worshiped other gods. He even sacrificed his own son on the altar to the pagan pagan god Molech. And so here's Isaiah prophesying to Ahaz, to call him back to trust in the Lord in face of this impending invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah. At that point, there was this kind of an allied force of Syria and even the northern kingdom of Israel that was threatening to come against Judah. And so bad was the threat, so imminent was the danger that this is what it said in Isaiah seven, it says that his heart, and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. What great poetic imagery we see wicked King Ahab and his people are just reacting with fear instead of reacting by placing their faith and trust in God. They're shaken, they're unstable in their hearts. It says they're like trees in the wind, right? We might even say that they were blown away by their circumstances. gets with me? Blown away with the, the wind and the it's a tough crowd this morning, I'm telling you that. <clears throat> okay, but wait, there's more, right? Because it gets worse. Because in chapter 8, Isaiah basically prophesied, he says, look, this Syria-Israel alliance, this isn't the real threat. The real threat is this invasion of this larger Assyrian nation into the northern kingdom of Israel. That's going to stop any threat of this little invasion, but it's also going to severely impact Judah. And, you know, King Ahaz, you need to get your people prepared and don't turn your back on the Lord, but turn back to the Lord. And the people of Judah are so shaken by all of these threats that are going on around them that they had turned not to God for their comfort, but in Isaiah chapter eight it says that they turned to mediums and wizards who might whisper and mutter. So God's people had turned to the occult to find comfort in the midst of this. So. Looking at this picture, it's not a pretty one, right? We've got a divided nation, a wicked king, an imminent threat to their safety, a population that is far from God. They're looking to these ungodly pagan priests for their guidance. And you're saying, well, all that's fine, but I didn't really need a 10 page, 10 minute, sort of a history lesson on a Sunday morning, right? All I came for was some kind of an uplifting Christmas message. And yet the point is that this is the context into which comes this powerful promise beginning here in chapter nine. And I think that understanding it just makes the promise that much more powerful. Because here's where Isaiah says to wicked King Ahaz that not only is there hope for you, not only is there hope for your nation, but there's also hope for this devastated northern kingdom of Israel after this invasion that we know is coming from Assyria. So he says, look, even out of this great darkness is gonna come great light and great joy. Look at what Isaiah says in verses one and two of Isaiah nine, he says, "'Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her "'who is distressed.'" So that northern nation as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So Isaiah warns, look, dark days are coming, especially for those northern nations, right? The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, all of that northern part of Israel in the areas of the Galilee region. He said, but then these same areas, these same peoples who are about to suffer the most when Assyria is gonna sweep down from the north and take Israel, those very same people in those very same areas are gonna be the first ones to see the light of the coming Messiah. So here's Isaiah looking 740 years down the tunnel of time and he says that a new day is going to dawn, there's gonna be true light, joy is gonna be increased, there's gonna be deliverance and there's gonna be peace and there's gonna be this time when Israel is gonna rejoice and all of their burdens, he says, are gonna be lifted. And he points them now to the coming of their Messiah And now in verse 3, interestingly, Isaiah begins to speak prophetically to the Messiah. Look what he he says in verse 3. He says that you've multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of this burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So God's answer to their mounting problems and to their increasing anxiety is to remind them of the coming of their Messiah. And we know specifically that this is speaking of Jesus because Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his gospel account, he quotes this very prophecy in Matthew 4, given here by Isaiah in Isaiah 9, and he proclaims that this was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, who began his ministry where? Up in the Galilee region. right? Jesus went first to this region that was dark, and despised right this great light and this great joy right the yoke of burden the rod of oppression all of it's going to be ultimately finally physically broken through the ministry of Jesus and we've talked before about the fact that this will come through his future rightful reign as king here on earth but the truth is that this promise and this Complete victory over all of their physical enemies also comes with a more powerful promise to the spiritual victory that Jesus brings, not only in our world, but in our own lives. Right? That, That great light and great joy and complete victory over burden and oppression, all of these things are meant to be ours even now in Jesus, and that in its simplest essence, that's the story of Christmas. One of my very favorite Christmas carols each and every year is O Holy Night, and we just sang it together this morning. And I love in particular that line from the lyrics, again, I think it's especially on my mind and it's in my heart every year as we approach this season, but it's the one that talks about a weary world rejoicing at the birth of Jesus and you know we look around increasingly I'm not sure if there's been a time when it seems that the world has been more weary just collectively weary than we are even as we approach Christmas this year there's this increasing anxiety and this fear about the future, this fear of these imminent threats that threaten our, sa- our sense of, of safety and of peace and of joy and maybe even threaten our very way of life. Right? We have, a, we have a nation that's divided. We have people that are seeking comfort from all kinds of sources. Right? Don't we sound a lot like the kingdom of Judah under wicked King Ahab? We're afraid of invasion. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid of danger that seems to be threatening us. It's a dark outlook aside from the hope that we have in God. But here's the truth. As Christians, we know this intuitively, right? The the real danger isn't the danger around us. The real danger is the danger where? Within us. Because in that very same carol that we just sang, O Holy Night, right, it hits the nail on the head when we sing about, you know, long lay the world in sin and error pining, wasting away in sin and in error. And so whether it's in the the history of Israel or the history or the future of the world today, right, all of it, everything we see is just symptomatic, it's simply the outworking, it's a result of those catastrophic consequences, right? Globally and nationally and physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of these catastrophic consequences that came into the entire world and have impacted every person in the world as a result of that train wreck called the fall of man that occurred back in the garden with Adam and Eve. As they turned their back from the rule of God in their lives and effectively separated the human race from real relationship with him. And it's this problem, right, that this prophecy of the coming Messiah actually promises to address. Because now, Continuing on, this is the part of the prophecy that I think that you're familiar with. Isaiah continues that in the midst of this great darkness is going to come this great light and this great joy with the arrival of a great great savior. Look in Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 6 it says that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, it wasn't just this pressing problem of this potential threat against the nation of Judah that God was trying to address here. It was the plaguing problem of our most pressing need for a savior from our sin. And yet, as we've seen, it was specifically this real pressing problem and this imminent danger, right? The weariness of the world at that moment in their history, that was the occasion, right? That was the the dark backdrop for what is one of the most powerful and the most descriptive prophecies about Jesus, as we said before, about who he would be, about what he would come to do. And this verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it reads like something that's so poetic, something so ethereal, it sounds like something that came right out of John's gospel account. And in fact, the book of Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel. All the way back as early as the fourth century, that's how you know, early Christians started to begin to recognize that there was something truly unique about this book. And so affectionately, it's called the fifth gospel because it contains such fabulous descriptions of the Lord Jesus within the book given to us a full 740 years before he was ever actually born into the world. And as a result, Christians love the book of Isaiah because it is so full of Jesus. Because instinctively, right, as people who are now filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like we're drawn to this book. We're drawn to these passages that so beautifully describe him to us, right? These wonderful prophecies with a promise, as Isaiah starts here, that unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Right there, that's the story of Christmas from two perspectives, right? It's the story of Christmas from what happened on earth, as well as the story of Christmas from what happened in heaven. So on earth a child was born, But from heaven, a son was given. What a beautiful description of the incarnation of Jesus, right? As the son of God himself, right? As God himself became a man and humbled himself, taking on human flesh. And of course, we're going to look at that truth more together next week as we look at the birth of the king, right? And specifically what that means to us, not just theologically, But what that really means to us, what his kingship really means to us personally and practically. But here's this astounding truth that the Savior of the world, right, the very answer to the sin of the world and to all the problems that plague the world, would be born into this world not as an angel not some other kind of a heavenly messenger. He's not going to be introduced into human history as some sort of a full-grown man. He's not coming into the world by way of some awesome arrival on a fiery chariot or a white horse or even some intergalactic comet, right? Or, Or any other equally dramatic way, which would have been fitting, but he's going to be born into the world as a baby as a child. And then as Isaiah continues, we discover that this particular child, Jesus, is going to be anything but an ordinary child. Remember before Jesus was born, there was that angel that came to Joseph, right? And said to him, in Matthew 21, it says, of his virgin wife, Mary, it says that she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, right? Jesus or Yeshua, which we translate in English as Joshua. And the word means God saves, or more simply, more literally, it means Savior. And remember, in the Jewish culture, a name was more than just a way to tell someone apart from somebody else. It was, was more than just something you gave out to avoid confusion in the kindergarten classroom right? But a name for the Jews, it spoke very often prophetically, a name spoke of the character and of the qualities of that person. And so here Isaiah tells us next, not just one, but there are a number of names that would be given to this coming child, Savior, Messiah. The first of which he says his name will be called, what? Wonderful. That when he comes, And all that he does is going to be wonderful. It's going to be full of wonder, and we will wonder over it. You know, and as you look at the Lord Jesus in the scriptures, just as we've been doing on Sunday mornings in Mark's account of his life, right? And you see the way that he deals with each and every person. You come away from it, and you can't help but think, you know what? That was wonderful. You pull back from reading all those red letters and you think, you know what, that situation could not possibly been handled any more wonderfully than the way that Jesus handled it. We read about what he says in all the different situations. We read about what he does and you can't help but be filled with a wonder over his wisdom. Every word is wonderful, every work is wonderful, especially, as we're going to see, his coming death and burial and resurrection is especially wonderful on our behalf. And we think about this, again, not just from a theological perspective, but think about it in regards to our own relationship with Jesus as Christians. Jesus is not just wonderful in the Bible. He wasn't just wonderful 2,000 years ago. He is wonderful to you and he is wonderful to me every single day in every single situation. He is wonderful in this trial. He's wonderful in that circumstance. He's wonderful in this relationship. He's wonderful in this difficulty. He's wonderful in my joy and he's even wonderful in my pain. He's wonderful all the time. Right? always wonderful in our lives. He's wonderful company. He's a wonderful listener. To follow him is wonderful, and to be his disciple is wonderful. To serve him is wonderful. Even to be disciplined or to be chastened by him is still wonderful. And I think that it's wonderful to realize, no matter how difficult or challenging life might become for a Christian, that we always have this constant source of wonderful that is available to us in him, right? No matter how messy the world gets, no matter how messy my life gets, we have this constant flow and this constant source of wonderful coming into our lives. And it's all because of Jesus. And nobody can stop that flow of wonderful from coming into our, our lives. And that I think is wonderful. Isaiah also says he'll be called counselor, right? So he's a wonderful counselor. In other words, he provides us with perfect counsel. And you know the Bible tells us that he provides it through his word and through his spirit and through spiritual gifts of wisdom and and knowledge or prophecy. He'll speak to us in that still small voice, right? Jesus has a lot of different ways of speaking to us and of giving counsel counsel for us. And I will tell you, and no doubt you will agree to me, with me, that in all the years that I've been walking with Jesus, I have never, ever known him to give me bad counsel or to, or to make a bad decision for my life. Not one time. There have been times when I was a little iffy about it, right? But I realized, okay, I need to wait this out. I need to see what's really going on here because you know, the, so often the present situation, the circumstance can, can obscure my view, right? But then as days go by or weeks or sometimes it takes even years to go by and we look back and we see that what he's doing or what it was he was up to and we realize that that was the very best thing that could have happened in my life. But I have never known him to make a bad decision for my life, not even one time. I've never, ever obeyed his teaching or obeyed his counsel or obeyed his commandments only to come afterward and say, boy, that was sure a mistake, right? Because the counsel is perfect because the counselor is perfect. And I know that my testimony is your testimony because he's the only one who can provide us with safe counsel in this unsafe world right this the world that we live in and yes this nation that we live in it's a mess because of the turning of our backs collectively on his counsel and the degree to which we defy his instruction and his counsel is the degree to which we're going to move toward lawlessness and toward chaos and towards confusion only god knows what he's talking about in this fallen world and the same, of course, is true of our individual lives. And so often we can sit here today and we are the victims of our own wisdom. Right? We are the victims of our own counsel. Or we're the victims of somebody else's counsel or somebody else's wisdom. And we wonder, you know, is there counsel? Is there, you know counsel that I can receive that won't do damage to my life? You know, is there a safe refuge? And yes, there is. And it's the wisdom of the Lord and it's his counsel which comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. So not only was he born into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of the sins, of sins but to provide us with counsel and with direction and with instruction and wisdom that he knew that we would so desperately need. It's such a privilege to know him as our counselor, this wonderful counselor. And then Isaiah goes on to say that he's going to be nothing less than mighty God, simply communicating the fact that he is powerful. And think about this. In other words, he's not just a wonderful counselor, but he has, and then he gives to us the power to make his counsel come to pass. Think about how many people there are today in blogs and books and vlogs and videos with endless advice about how to fix our problems or how to fix all the problems that confront humanity and yet no problems ever get fixed. And yet Jesus, not only does he call us to live this life, But because he is Almighty God, he gives us this wonderful wisdom in his commandments, in his instruction, and then he couples that with the ability and the power that we need in order to be able to obey those commandments. There's power behind his word to us. And probably every one of us here this morning, we have tested his promises up one side and down the other. And again, Never have we known him not to keep one single promise that he's made to us. We can walk with him for years and years only to find that he has never been anything but completely faithful to fulfill those promises in our lives. And who else can we possibly say that about? Again, think about our study through Mark. We read through these gospel accounts and we see that in every situation that he was in, that he was the master of that situation. Power, right? Whether it's storms or crowds or sickness or, or confronted with physical infirmity or demon possession or spiritual oppression, the deep pain caused by the sin of people, you name the need, he was the master over that need. And yet, never anxious, never overwhelmed, never rattled, never perplexed, but in every situation, mastery. You could read through every one of the Gospels, and you can try to find any moment where Jesus was remotely rattled by anything, and you will never find it. He was completely in control of every situation. And all of this, of course, speaks to us the fact that for us as Christians, right, the way that his word is to us in our situation and the the promises that he makes to us about our situation, those things are going to be the final word in that situation because he has the power to make sure that it happens. Right. Isaiah tells us further that Jesus, name, in his name, he's going to be the everlasting father. Now, don't be confused. This doesn't mean that Jesus is the father. The Bible very clearly teaches us that each person within the Godhead, right? The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. They are each distinct persons. But we could just as easily or equally translate that word everlasting father to something like father of eternity, and some of your translations may actually translate it that way. Because he's going to be the father of everything that's eternal. When the the Jews in that culture talked about a father, it had the idea, the sense of being the originator of something or the source of something. And so what's really being spoken of is the fact that Jesus here is the source He's the originator of everything that is eternal. So everything that's everlasting in our lives, Jesus brings into our lives. From everlasting life to that relationship that we have with him for all eternity, right? Everything that's eternal, Jesus brought that because he's the father of eternity. And he effectively said the very same thing In John chapter 8, you remember that incident where he's speaking with the religious leaders as they are revering their father Abraham. And he says this, he says, look, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, what? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, I pre-existed Abraham because he is the father of eternity, right? Because to give eternal life, you have to first have eternal life to give out. And Jesus alone has that, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And then so fittingly, look what Isaiah tells us that Jesus' name is gonna be the Prince of Peace, And to me, this is like this beautiful bow that just kind of wraps up everything else. And this is the very same truth that Jesus said about himself to his disciples in John chapter 14, in that upper room scene that we just have been studying Mark's version of, but in John's account, Jesus says this in in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. And we say, wow, it can't get any better than that, right? Here, Jesus is pronouncing to us as his disciples that he is leaving us with peace. But then as he goes on, he says something that's even stronger. He says, peace I leave with you. Then what does he say? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, Neither let it be afraid. And then in John chapter 16, he says this. He says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And, you know, if, if we only know peace during those moments when our, our national or, or international circumstances are seemingly peaceful, and then on top of that, our personal circumstances need to be peaceful. If all of those things need to line up in order for us to know peace, then we will never know peace in this life. Or if we do, we will only know it for fleeting moments at best. The only way that we can know peace in this life is to be able to trust in one who is greater than all those things that are around us or all those things that are inside of us that can take our peace away from us. And Jesus is the only one who is that and who can really do that. He brings this priceless, supernatural peace into a human life. Because think about this, how rich really is a person if he or she doesn't know peace. You can be a billionaire. You can possess all kinds of things and you can know all kinds of people and you can have access to all kinds of places, but if you don't know peace, then are you really rich? You don't have the capacity to actually enjoy life and to experience life the way that God created us to. And only the peace that the Prince of Peace, Jesus, can provide to us, only that is a powerful enough peace to be greater than every problem that we have or to be greater than every circumstance that we're in, but then to give us that peace. And that's precisely what Jesus is and that's precisely what Jesus does. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. And so this is who Jesus is. This is what he came into the world to be, who he came into the world to be, and not only into the world, but in each of our lives. And God promised it in this kind of amazing detail through Isaiah 740 years before it would happen, right? That into this great darkness would come this great light and this great joy, this great Savior, right, and so much more. And then he finishes up in verse seven with this great promise that he would perform it. In verse seven, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And perform it, he did. Because unto us a child was born, right? Unto us a son was given 2,023 years ago. And it changed our calendar, it changed the history of humankind. As this weary world, that was pining away in sin and in error, right? Jesus came to be our king and to be our kinsman redeemer, to die for our sins and to become for us that unfailing source of everything that is wonderful in our lives and to provide us with that counsel and that wisdom and that direction for our lives, to provide us with the power to make it all come to pass in our lives, And to provide us with all the things that are eternal, right? Beginning with our everlasting life. And to give us peace that only he as the son of God and as God the son could provide. And who in their right mind would turn down that kind of an offer? Because really it takes just a few short moments to stop and consider and to look around at how hard and how weary the world is and how hard life can be and uh, to look at all the challenges that each one of us can face and then just be honest about those deep needs that we each have in our lives and then simply ask ourselves if the savior who God would send who he said he would send into the world, right? 740 years before he was born. Ask yourself if this Jesus, as he's described that he would be, ask yourself if he he is not the perfect match for every need that I have within my life. Because the truth is that he is. Right? God loves you so much. He knows you and he knew what you would need most from him before you ever knew that you would need those things from him. And he provided them all for us in Jesus. For that day that we would finally get to in each one of our lives where we would realize, you know what? I realize I have been made for a relationship with God. I've been made to have fellowship with God. And then when we finally realize that all of that begins with a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And that he is wonderful. He's the counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace that can overwhelm every need that I have in my life. And so how do you begin that relationship with him? Well, Jesus told us, right? In the most famous verse in all of the Bible, in John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel message. It's so simple. Right? That God so loved the world. That's you. And that's me. And Because of that love, he gave. And that's the very same word that we see here in Isaiah 9-6. That a son was what? Given. So God gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus. That whosoever, who's that? That's you and me again, right? Believes in him or simply trusts in him that as a result of that, that we will not perish, but we need to have everlasting life. So we can receive that Savior and all that comes with him into our lives by simply putting our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And people will always ask, well, why would God do it that way? Right? It seems to be too simple. They'll say, you know what? If you knew how bad a person I've been, you would know that I need to crawl on my hands and knees over broken glass from here to, to wherever. Right? It couldn't possibly be that simple for someone like me to be saved. But the truth is that no one can add anything to the salvation that Jesus has provided for us. And the single greatest thing that any person can do for God the Father is not to do some work for Him or to make some sacrifice to Him. The single greatest thing that we can do to honor Him is to put our faith in the Son that He sent into the world to die for your sins. Because that cannot be improved upon. So today is the day for all of us to pray, right? If we haven't already. And just ask God to begin that relationship with Jesus Christ that we were prepared for, right? This is for everyone, right? There's none so good that you don't need to be saved. But there's also none so bad that they can't be saved. And as we close in worship this morning, there's going to be people up here who are available to pray with you. I realize we're a small crowd today, but if there's anyone here, if there's anyone listening and you haven't yet received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, today's the day. As we prepare to celebrate his birth, we can reap greatly of the benefits of his death. This is a sinner's Savior that we're talking about here today. Jesus is the perfect match for all of our deepest needs. That's the essence of Christmas that we celebrate now. Amen? Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for this wonderful, beautiful, poetic description, Lord, this powerful portrait of who Jesus would be, Lord, and what he would do when he came. And, Father, we do pray if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't yet know the reality of this in their own heart and in their own lives. Lord, we pray that today would be that day that they would take that first step toward beginning that relationship with you. Lord, to be reconciled back to you through the price that was paid by Jesus Lord and and for the rest of us Lord we pray that you would stir up our hearts to the realities of these gospel truths even now as we head into the celebration of Christmas and Father we uh, we look forward expectantly to what you'll do this week Lord to those people that you'll bring into our path and those opportunities that you will provide to us Lord uh, just a witness of this miraculous event Lord, that we uh, will observe next week. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we do it in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand up and let's worship the Lord together.